0: our first rule of thumb is do no harm. And so in order to do no harm, we gotta understand what we're buying and what we're getting ourselves involved in and make sure that we're using good judgment.
1: Hey podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. All right. Welcome back to the TMBA pod. Boss man, are you audible? I'm audible. You're here. you ready to do this thing. Yeah. I'm feeling good about 2019, man. One of the best things about having a show like this is that you can reach out to the people that you think are legit, that you think are onto something special and try to decode what that special something is. So just under two years ago, Ian, you identified this entrepreneur named Brent Beshore, founder and CEO of AdVenture.es, which they describe as a quote family of companies that acquires family-owned companies. So Ian, since you last spoke with Brent His team is more or less doubled. They've made a decision to raise private equity. They've bought a headquarters. They even wrote a book. It really feels like whatever Brent's on about, it's working. So what did you discover when you gave him a call?
2: I don't want to spoil the episode and give it all away, but I think Brent is right about a lot of things. In 2018, Dan, I, I saw several organizations start to gain traction basically VC firms looking to help bootstrappers, essentially saying, we're here to help bootstrappers. We know what bootstrappers need, want, the kind of advice that, they, <laughs>
1: that they'd like. They primarily need advice. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, let's not sugarcoat this thing because everybody is. Everybody with these heart-focused approaches and stuff. The bottom line is the businesses that TMBA listeners are growing are super valuable and everyone wants a piece of the pie. And that's totally fair, but that's what's happening.
2: Yeah. And there's these VC firms that are disguised as organizations that are are friendly to that. But it it actually goes against the core values and the core ways in which these companies move forward financially. And that's something that Brent has realized. Brent has realized and acquires companies that are family-driven, that are a lot of times started from nothing. Started from a couple dollars in a family bank account or in a personal bank account and grown into these multi million dollar organizations and are very valuable and don't have a lot of debt. He's identified a system to identify these companies and acquire them and then put in a management structure to run them and to run them into perpetuity forever, to not sell them, to not even act like they're going to sell them. He has the idea that they're going to hold on to these companies forever there's something very honest about what Brent is doing. And there's something a little bit dishonest about what I see happening right now in the space of funding. And so I'm instantly attracted to Brent and his message and the things that he is doing. And I'm becoming more and more leery of what these VC firms are posing. And I just want to say this too, Dan, along the lines of these like VC firms coming out and acting like they know how to help bootstrappers. The model only works, the VC model only works if you turn a profit for the investors and probably ultimately sell the business. And that's gonna come out in the wash eventually. You know, it's, it's a very sexy message on the front, what everyone is selling these days, but it's not really how it works. And I just wanna say that so bootstrappers, people that are growing these types of companies don't get caught up in the marketing
1: messages that these guys are selling. Well, who's also getting caught up, though, Ian, is the investors, right? Because, I mean, look, this has been a joke since the beginning of the time. Who wins when you raise a round of investment? The fund manager wins. And that's something that comes out in this interview is Brent raised capital,
2: around $50 million. And Brent's firm does not take a cut. So a lot of these VC firms, a lot of these PE firms, they take a management cut. 2 to 5% whatever it might be and that's how they get paid even if the companies aren't successful. Brent doesn't take that management fee and that's one that's that's when my bullshit dinger goes off when I see that management fee. I go, "Oh, okay.
1: This is why I haven't gotten involved in any of these funds yet because not only like is the fund manager winning when you give them your funds, like that is the key transaction right there, right? Because you're getting promised something that's like 5, 7, 10 years into the future. So Boom. The transaction's right now. I write that check. They win. They get the management fee. They get the commission fee. Now, all of a sudden, what's going to happen to my money? Well, it's going to get distributed to founders who I probably don't know. That investment's not secured. And I can't... I mean, maybe I can give some advice to the founder, but I certainly can't control the founder. And so this to me just seems like... I mean. Not like necessarily a bad thing to do, but certainly not something to do unless you're extremely wealthy and have a bunch of cash sitting around you want to light on fire or just take some risks with, or get involved in something cool. And let's be honest, that's ultimately what the sales pitch is. It's like buy yourself into a cool experience, which I'm all for, but when I'm thinking about money investments and how to turn my money into more money, I want more control than that, you know? Right. And that's exactly why
2: I think I'm attracted to Brent and what he's doing is because essentially he's going in, he's finding people that are ready to sell their business, ready to retire, ready to essentially give it a good home with Brent. Brent comes in and he continues to run these organizations. And so, you know, along the lines of what you were saying, we have many a friend, Dan, that have more money than us and they check money into these funds because it's cool to have your face and your bio on the page as a mentor, as an investor. Everybody thinks you're super cool if you don't have the money to lose, don't do it. Because like you said, you're investing in founders that you have no control over. Brent is investing in something else. He's investing in himself because he's buying these companies and he's building the management structure around them.
1: And I'll tell you what, this is a secret that I'm seeing and I'll tip off my cards for a topic later on in the year. But I think what these firms are trying to do is figure out new ways to help founders. And I think the future of these investment funds actually revolves around getting rid of the founders. Totally. Let's not step all over the interview. Let's let the expert talk. Ian, why don't you introduce this uh, wonderful interview you had with Brent for us?
2: So I was fortunate enough to uh, catch up with Brent again. So I started off by asking Brent to give us a reminder of the adventures structure.
0: AdVentures, there's 13 of us. We have six portfolio companies that we work with on an ongoing basis. And then we acquire kind of one to four businesses a year that make between three on the low end, I would say now these days, and eight million kind of on the high end, maybe up to 10 million uh, in earnings. And so these are mature businesses. They're usually part of like what we call the main street economy. These aren't typically technology-based businesses. If anything, it's sort technology-enabled businesses, but it's providing something that is needed in the economy. It's going to be needed for a long time. And uh, we try to come in, offer them a good long-term home. We buy with no intention of ever selling the company and uh, try to treat people well in the process and all win together.
2: So there's a bunch of things that you said there that kind of differentiate yourself from a, what I'd call like a traditional PE firm. Would you categorize yourself as a PE firm?
0: Well, I mean, it's technically, anybody who, who buys non-public equities is private equity. We certainly have a fund. We raised $50 million in a dedicated fund to buy equities in private companies. So yes, we're private equity in that sense, in the more traditional sense of what private equity means. So typically, private equity firms are on a seven to 10-year time horizon. So they buy a company and almost immediately put it up for auction again. They come in, have a have a reputation for cutting costs pretty dramatically, you know, trying to pretty up the business in an effort to to sell it. We certainly don't do that. So in 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 every way we're kind of the opposite of private equity in terms of style, but technically we buy equity that is private, so we are private equity.
2: Your website is adventure.es, right? Correct. I went there the other day, I highlighted your address and then I put it into Google Maps because I wanted to see what your office looked like. And it's like this cute little house in the middle of the Midwest. So paint me a picture. What What is it like? Do you get up every morning and go to that office?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's wonderful. We spent the better part of eight months renovating an 1882 mansion in downtown Columbia. We have two apartments as part of the office complex. So we have a lot of guests coming in from out of town. So there's 13 of us that are here often. We've got Mills, who runs our South Carolina office, and then Suzanne, who lives full-time in Tulsa, but other than that, so 11 of us kind of almost every day, and then two of us are here uh, kind of on and off.
2: I'm really interested in the intersection of like business and lifestyle and travel. And so, who are the types of people that come and stay at these apartments that are at your office?
0: We have employees that are in the companies that are coming through. We have Suzanne and Mills who often come into town. We uh, just hired uh, Tim Hansen who actually this week moved here from Washington, D.C., but he was using the apartments. For Hina's family when they'd come into town. And then we've got, you know, some of our investors that come into town. We've got partners that we have that come into town. So we have a, you know, we're pretty, gosh, I would say 60% of the time, at least one of the apartments is in use. And probably 25% of the time, both the apartments are in use. It's been a big boost for us. We have an incredibly relaxed policy of get your stuff done. And if you need to be here, be here. We want to give people a landing place where they can. Be comfortable, and they can be productive and enjoy things. Probably on the average day, there's seven or eight people in the office, kind of pretty consistently, because usually a couple people are around the country doing stuff. I think it does face-to-face contact. I think helps with building trust with, you know, just nonverbal communications. It's not like we're get here at eight, leave at five. People roll in and leave kind of whenever they want to and need to, and otherwise we uh, leave it up to them to, you know, be their own boss.
2: I want to talk in a minute here about the $50 million that you guys raised. But first, let's talk a little bit about the book that you just wrote. It's called The Messy Marketplace. What was your inspiration for writing this book?
0: Well, the way we look at everything we write is a way to scale conversation. What conversations are we trying to have with what group of people? And how can we get our thoughts down in a crisp and clean manner that allows people to then select in or select out and start a conversation much further down the road than they would otherwise be. And so we initially started writing this because we did a survey of, gosh, I would say 60, 70 books that were about selling or buying businesses. And really, we just couldn't find anything that we could use ourselves. And so we said, gosh, we've got to start writing this. So we wrote kind of an initial draft and just initially planned on kind of making it a white paper and very, very long white paper at that point. And just using it for our purposes to send out to prospective sellers and CPAs and lawyers, just kind of give them a perspective of how we looked at the world. And then we thought, well, gosh, if we've gone to this effort, how much harder could it be to just, you know, get it into a book form and publish it and maybe other people could find value in it. And so that's what we did. We didn't understand how much work it would actually be, Mm -hmm. but it's the first five to seven hours of conversation that we want to have with every seller, the families of sellers, the leadership teams in these selling companies, you know, all the people that surround these families and get us all on the same page. And so that was our that was our goal. The messy marketplace. It says everything in the title. It's messy, right? It's not a perfect book. I don't think we nailed everything in it, but I think it gives a pretty good survey of the landscape and is certainly something very different than anything else that's being written out there on the topic.
2: Well, I'll tell you what you did do is you wrote a book and that's hard. We did that and it was about our exit from our business. But the most important thing that I think you did in that book was you didn't load it up with BS, (laughs) which is so hard to find today in a business book. I mean, your book was so to the point. I want to read you a quote or two from that book and have you respond One of the quotes you said in this book is, selling a business isn't like selling, well, anything else. You're selling an ongoing concern. What did you mean by that?
0: When people think about selling anything, they think about just packaging it up and having somebody buy it. And it's like, you know, selling a house or selling a car or, you know, anything else. And what makes selling a business so different is it's a collection of people. I mean, for the most part, you have some technology, you have some processes, you know, different types of structure. But for the most part, you're taking a collection of people and transferring the economic earnings of that to somebody else. At least that's the idea. And people are messy. Whenever you take a messy seller and a group of messy people as part of the company and you surround them with messy intermediaries, potentially messy lawyers, and and let's not forget the probably the most messy group is the group of buyers. And so it's not a, a clean transaction in the sense of, you know, a house, you can, it's got certain square footage, it's got certain features, you know, it, you can inspect it. The inspection process, well, also known as due diligence for a business, is brutal. It takes an incredible amount of hard work on both ends. And that's because you're having to try to analyze all these different dynamics, which are mostly people.
2: I'll read you what you said about due diligence. You said due diligence is a fancy term for what have you told me that isn't true? What have you told me that I need to know? And what don't you know that I should know?
0: Correct. I mean, we're trying to verify that the things, the big material things that we've been told are true. I mean, oftentimes that is we employ these people. We have not had these lawsuits, right? We have made this type of money. These are our margins. These are our customers. We're just trying to verify that we have a 3D view and it's never going to be perfectly accurate. But we're trying to get to a point where we can be good partners post-close and to make sure, you know, we're understanding what we're really buying. And so, I mean, the the first thing is just verifying, what did you tell me? And then the second thing is, what do you not know that we need to know? So oftentimes it's a co-discovery process with the sellers that we're finding stuff and they're like, I didn't even know that was going on. Honestly, it happens virtually every transaction. And then really just trying to work down the list of what are the things that we really need to do to be aware of the business and who are the partners and how do we make sure that we're setting the table up for success at close because it's an incredibly disruptive process. People are terrified when they hear that a business has been sold, if they're employees or family members employees. And it's just really challenging not to have that go poorly. And so our first rule of thumb is do no harm. And so in order to do no harm, we got to understand what we're buying and what we're getting ourselves involved in and make sure that we're using good judgment.
2: On the topic of messy, I think I, I heard somewhere, I might have even read it, that you're looking for companies primarily in the three to eight million dollars of free cash flow range to acquire. Okay. But one of the other things that I, I heard you also say about that range of companies is often they aren't priced, meaning there isn't like a price on the deal. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, that is correct. So most of the deals come unpriced and they're really trying to understand what somebody's willing to pay for it. So it's not the seller expectations either are unknown or they're unwilling to disclose them. And so it's usually a process of saying, Hey, here's here's how we're pricing it, here's how we think about it, here's why we do this. And, you know, oftentimes they come back and say, Well, that's just not in our ballpark. Or they say it's not in our ballpark and we say no problem and they go back out to market and then they're Expectations change. I mean, everyone, by definition, sort of <laughs> is going to be biased. Your house is always, you think it's always worth more than it actually is, right? Mm-hmm. It's your house. You know, your, your business is your, is your baby. I mean, your baby is special. You should pay more. Everyone believes that they should get an above average multiple on their earnings. Everyone believes that it's a more stable business than it really is. And so we oftentimes are coming in and trying to set expectations very early that this is kind of the ballpark we're going to be in and not waste their time if that's not not reasonable to them.
2: So you guys are doing something very rare, which is essentially inside-out marketing. You're writing about what you're doing. You're explaining to people these deals. You have a book now. What eventually happens and what obviously happens to you guys is the deals start to come to you. So you don't have to have someone beating down the doors. You don't have to have someone calling all these listings. Like Families, companies are coming to you and saying, hey, we want you guys to buy our business. We really resonate with your message. We understand who you are, even if they might not exactly, right? But they sure. think they know who you are. And that's that's extremely powerful because people can start to come to you. With that said, right. do you think that's part of the reason why you see maybe less price deals is because people, they haven't even got to that point, right? They're just so emotional that they feel like they've connected with you that they're like oh my gosh I want these guys to take care of my business
0: yeah i mean i think to some degree that's true especially direct deals which are both a blessing and a curse in some ways if you've never gone down the process of selling your business before and you come to us and you say i don't know really what i'm doing here but you know i like what you all say and i want to get to know each other that's going to be a long process of getting everything sort of organized and the information gathered and starting those conversations, which is, again, the big driver of why we wrote the book. But I would say that pricing wise, it's just very unusual as you move up kind of above the two million dollar earnings cash flow mark that things become not priced as sort of a standard practice. The intermediaries in that area of the market would say, no, 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 let let a buyer throw out the first price because you never know. They might come and say, you know, it's worth double what you thought it was going to be worth. Right. So it's almost kind of to the advantage of the seller is, is how it's positioned. Now, the question is, if you have a clear number in your head and it's already elevated from, say, an average multiple you'd seen in, in the market, the chances of you going to a buyer and saying, well, you tell me what it's worth and then you get offended is pretty high. Right. And then, so that's what we always say is, look, just because we're not giving you the number you want doesn't mean we're right. So tell us why we're wrong. And then oftentimes through that process of them telling us why they're wrong, we say, well, actually, that's where I think the disagreement is. We try to hone in on where's maybe the valuation gap. And ultimately, there are tools that you can use to bridge that valuation gap, whether it's a downside protected note or an earnout of some type, which get a bad rap for not getting paid out. But that's just really not often the case.
2: Last time we talked, I was like amazed at how many deals you were reviewing. I think at the time it was like, I don't know, over a thousand a year. Are you still on pace with that?
0: Yes, we we see a lot of stuff. It's hard, all the different passes, and I'm not the one doing all the reviews anymore. So, you know, getting everyone and keeping track of exactly how many deals we see is kind of a fool's errand at this point. But we definitely, we see a ton of stuff. The quality, though, is what's really important. So you can throw out stats like, you know, we looked at 1,000 or 2,000 deals or whatever it is, and that sounds really, oh my gosh, wow, that's incredible. It doesn't really matter if, if you're seeing, you know, really low quality opportunities. And so we've been really we've been focused on how do we see less deals, actually? So we want to get that selection bias to actually work in our favor against people coming to us. If they're too small or they don't have the characteristics we're looking for, like we don't see we used to see a lot of like software deals. We don't see a lot of software deals anymore because we publicly have said there are really great software investors out there and we're just not one of them. So we're just not seeing those deal flow anymore, which is great because every deal we see that we never had a shot at closing is just wasted effort on both sides. Right. We've spent a lot of time trying to hone how do we get the, the funnel filled with the right opportunities and people that we have a shot at doing work with and try to get the others to select out in the opposite way.
2: Yeah, I've heard you describe before a checklist that you have when you're looking at a business, but how can you be so sure in your process and in, in your intuition about what you're looking for. Have you seen a business come across and think like, wow, I thought we were completely against something like this in terms of what looks like a good fit for adventure, but it, it turns out this is a good business.
0: Yeah. I mean, we're often wrong on, on both directions. So what we oftentimes try to do when we're looking at a company fresh is try to get the things that we know are incredibly important. So the things that we know that are incredibly important are, there's a willing seller, which sounds funny, but oftentimes, <laughs> there are a lot of people involved in a sales situation. And it's not super clear if those are the people that are, you know, actually doing that. I would say another one is it's in the ballpark of the growth trajectory we're looking for. So you know, oftentimes, businesses will look like they, you know, did half a million dollars and then a million dollars of earnings and then all of a sudden popped up to three and then five million dollars of earnings. And we say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What's causing that big inflection point? And oftentimes it's off of a very low revenue growth, which means there's a high leverage of operations in the business, which can be good and bad. If you can sustain that you know, level of operations, that's fantastic. But oftentimes we see, especially now, top of market cycle businesses that, you know, will gush cash for a year or two very top of market and then we'll end up just being middling or lose money most of the economic cycle so we're very selective on how we look at those types of things and we just want to make sure that it feels right you know as we're getting into it because a deal never gets better as you continue to explore it right it's kind of like first date versus getting married right like you start seeing more and more of the flaws which is what makes it amazing i mean that's what that's what makes life interesting but we want to believe very few things need to be true
1: Today's show is sponsored by dynamitejobs.co. It's our newest baby and targets something we're passionate about here at the TMBA, helping your business succeed through growing amazing remote teams. And we know from personal experience just how hard it can be to find the right people. And that's why we've designed dynamite jobs to address that problem. So starting at as low as $200, we can help you find your next remote team member. And for 500, we'll handpick the best candidates using a pre-vetting process. We call it Wise Match, and it's designed to save you days, even weeks of your time determining the top-ranking candidates for the role that you need. And for those of you seeking remote jobs, I urge you to register with us. It's completely free. I promise you we're not just the next job board. We want to work actively with you to identify ideal positions for your skill set. So whether you're looking to hire great people or whether you're one of those great people who feels that your skills are wasted in your current company and you want more freedom and flexibility in your life, check out dynamitejobs.co today.
2: So let's talk a little bit about this $50 million that you raised. First question is, why did you feel it was important? And second question is, how long do you think it will take you to actively deploy it?
0: great question. So on the front end there were there were two driving factors. The first one was deal flexibility. You know, when you start off with a with a little amount of capital, I mean, I was an entrepreneur early on and just compounded for 10 years and you know, you pay a lot in taxes and <laughs> you fund working capital needs and expansion in the companies, which is fantastic, but you know, it's not like we were sitting on a tremendous pile of cash that we could go out and get aggressive when we saw the opportunities. And so we for a couple of years there, we just start seeing these incredible pitches that we just couldn't swing the bat on. And so we were losing out on deals that otherwise we could do, and we were losing out on optimal structure around those deals. So if you don't have much capital, the only way you can do larger deals, and when I say larger deals, you know, call it 10, 20, $25 million deals, is by using a tremendous amount of leverage. And we didn't feel comfortable that we wanted to put the companies and the families that were involved in those companies in harm's way which kind of how we think about highly levered deals, they may turn out great or not. But if they don't, people are going to get hurt. There's a lot of ways to make money in the world. We didn't want to play that game. And so ultimately, we decided that that was going to be something that we wanted to do more and more of was do larger deals. And when I say larger deals, I'm not talking about traditional private equity, sort of, you know, huge deals. But in our area of the market, kind of that three to eight million is no man's land. Traditional private equity sits above us search funds, fundless sponsors, and what we call country club deals kind of sit below us. And there's really not a lot of players in that area of the market. And so that was a driving factor. I mean, the other factor was that my wife and I have some things that we'd like to do with our resources, giving them away to certain groups. And we felt like that every time we would give anything away, it would be a bullet that I couldn't shoot at the office. And it was, you know, frankly, just limiting the professional careers of Myself and my coworkers by doing that. And so decoupling those two things, I think, was an important piece as well. And it's worked out great. We have an incredible investor base.
2: Can you tell me who a typical LP is? So, a limited partner in this organization?
0: The structure is highly unusual. So, we take no fees of any kind. There's no management fees. There's no, we don't take any reimbursements for travel. 100% of the cost structure of Adventures. The 13 team members is not covered by the fund, and then we end up taking a percentage of the free cash flow thrown off by the businesses. So everyone's interests are aligned. If we don't perform, we don't get paid, which is how it should be, right? Like I have this thing of an investor should not make or a GP should not make more money than the LPs, right? The LPs should always be in a position where it's a heads we win together or tails we lose together situation, which is just fundamentally not how traditional private equity works, Right. So so it's
2: like, I made my 3%. Sorry, we didn't make any money, but good game. We'll try next year.
0: Exactly. And so that's very unusual about it. And and really to get comfortable with our structure, because I'm not going to call it unique, because obviously I don't have a complete view of the universe of who's ever done what. But from what we can tell, it's either unique or highly unusual what we did, which created its own set of problems. The only people who really could invest with us were family, you know, offices, families that, the people who were making the decision were also the holders of the capital, so there wasn't career risk. Right? They could tolerate looking bad because they were just looking bad to themselves, as opposed to if you get into a professionally managed situation. I mean, we had one very honest and we really like him a lot investor. who was a head of private equity for a very large family office. Say to us, he said, "Like I love what you guys are doing. I would invest my own money in it." But I can't invest on behalf of the family because if you do really, really well, it doesn't really move the needle that much for us. And if you do poorly, I can get fired. So it's just an asymmetric outcome that has nothing to do with the underlying risk reward economics of the investment.
2: He could get fired or he could show up to the office every day and sit in the corner and and ask people questions about what they're doing, right? It could become an uncomfortable situation for everyone.
0: To answer your question, who are the families? I mean they're all they're across the the country and they're let's call it 7 8 anchor families as part of the the fund and they all made their money starting businesses. This is not second third fifth generation wealth. This is not sort of an institutionalized money. There was no institutions that came into it. It was all families who were entrepreneurs and who get what entrepreneurship's about and get how small businesses work.
2: Can you tell me a little bit about the deal structure? Are they there to contribute expertise? Are they there con- to just contribute monetarily? You know, because you're buying and holding potentially forever. Is it getting spun off yearly?
0: So, from a commitment level, the LPs have committed the capital. So, it's legally callable capital whenever we, you know, on demand, whenever we want it. In terms of expertise, we oftentimes tap into expertise, especially with. Certain families are really into certain industries and have great backgrounds. If we're going to get into that industry, then, of course, we're going to call them. And any insider people they could connect us to, we we want to take advantage of that. But they're not obligated to do that, right? And that kind of depends on the situation. In terms of how the structure is, so the the capital that they're investing is functionally permanent. So there's a 27-year time horizon on the capital where there's no underlying liquidity for 27 years. And so that's very unusual yeah. in, the, in the equity world. And the way it works is we take all the free cash flow out of the companies in excess of what we want to reinvest for growth. So the first thing we do in every one of these companies, just like a family would, if you think about it in your head, how we're structured is exactly how a family you know owns a company over generations, which is you look for high probability, high return opportunities within the portfolio, And you say, of course, we want to reinvest in those first. That's incredible compounding tax free, typically, depending on how you structure it in the portfolio. And then any free cash flow above and beyond that, we distribute that out. And so annually, there's distributions that come out sort of in excess of the the capital that we're reinvesting.
2: The internet has made us, I think, believe in such short time horizons. So when you say you know, they will be invested for 27 years. I I can't even hardly get my head around that. Why do you think that these companies you're acquiring will potentially be worth anything 27 years from now?
0: They're involved in mainstay businesses. So these are Main Street. I mean, we we partnered with a glass and glazing company uh, headquartered in Dallas offices in Oklahoma City and Las Vegas. You know, until glass stops being used in construction, especially in sort of skyscraper high spec construction, they'll be fine. They're really, really good at what they do. And we want to support them, you know, as they continue to grow and move from being more of a local regional player to being more of a regional national player. In 27 years, will they be worth anything? Gosh, I I hope they're worth 10 times what they're worth today. And they've thrown off, you know, dividends, uh, distributions in the process. If they're not around, it's, you know, it's been a failure on their part and our part to put the right leadership in place and uh, structure the company appropriately for growth and longevity. And that includes you know, not levering it up with a bunch of debt and, like I said, having a lot of working capital on hand to be able to take advantage of projects that other people can't take advantage of. So a good example is, is these are the things that the economy needs and they're going to be enduring forever.
2: So that's part of your checklist. It seems like at this point, right? It's like, hey, this company has to be able to withstand a lot. And we think that they're essentially going to be around for a long time. The internet has taught us uh, very differently. It's interesting, though, because you blink an eye and all of a sudden 10 years has gone by and you blink two eyes and all of a sudden 20 years has gone by. It's like, wow, I really should have invested in that. (laughs) And (laughs) I think a lot of us have just gotten short-sighted about that.
0: We see stuff all the time that it looks incredible the cash flows that will come off something that just recently popped and you're like wow that's you know that's something maybe we should get involved in you got to ask yourself you're like wait a minute how do we know what's going to be around in 5 years or 3 years i mean we looked at a cell phone tower technology this kind of sticks out of my head as something that you know it was gushing cash but we just had no idea how long the customers would want that we didn't understand the dynamics of the industry we couldn't you know wrap our heads around it and so ultimately we had to pass and honestly looking back on it it was the right decision, but it was a really poor investment call. I mean, we would have made a tremendous amount of money on that company and but we just couldn't take advantage of it because we couldn't get comfortable. And there's no great sin in, in watching other people get rich. I mean, we've just yeah. we were okay to sit on the sidelines. I mean, we see stuff all the time that we can invest in and we choose not to, and say, you know what, somebody else with more expertise with maybe a different risk tolerance could. It's okay.
2: Last question about your LPs is where did they find you or where did you find them?
0: This is going to sound hilarious, but we found a giant chunk of them off Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've probably monetized Twitter better than Twitter has. We got connected with people who over time got to know us through the content we produced and who reached out. It was all inbound. I mean, we did zero outbound outreach to any of these families. They found us and read something we would written and said, no, wait a minute. That sounds like something we would want to be a part of. And, you know, we started the conversation. So. It's really, you know, been a testament to the power of putting yourself out there, and you know, as you said in the beginning, trying not to put a bunch of fluff around it, just trying to be who we are. And a lot of people don't like that, and <laughs> that's okay, right? I mean, we're not looking to be everything to everyone.
2: Yeah, but if if you're listening to this, you can hear how powerful it is. You didn't have to go out around and beat on doors like these people came to you, and that's that's the power of writing articles and writing books and expressing yourself. And in our first conversation we had a couple years ago. You described to me interviewing these people that are selling their businesses and trying to find out like what kind of people they are. Like, are they tying up their significant other to the pole outside while you're having dinner, or <laughs> you know, are they inviting them in to sit with you? Things like that, and those things really matter. And I think you've identified that those things really matter too, because essentially, like you've said, at the bottom of all this cash is is a bunch of people. Were there people? that approached you, LPs that approached you, that you thought like, oh, this person doesn't jive with our culture, or like, you know, I don't agree with this person's morals or whatever, because not to say money's a commodity, but there's plenty of it out there, especially for things like that these days. So how selective were you?
0: One, I think we had to talk about the selection bias of people who were coming inbound. We certainly had people that didn't jive with us in a number of different ways. They opted out and we opted out. But for the most part, you know, if somebody reads what we're writing or what we're saying and listens to what we're saying and they resonate with them, there's a good chance that they've already selected themselves in or out at that point. So we were pretty fortunate that the vast majority of people that we talked to, it was more of a matter of did it fit with their time horizon than did it fit with them from a personality perspective. I would say of, you know, maybe the 20 families that we talked to, maybe 25, only three or four of them did we kind of cock our heads to the side and say, mm, not sure about that. And, you know, we just politely declined at that point and, and moved along our merry way and didn't want to waste their time. So there's definitely every flavor of investor out there. But the closer the investor of the capital is to the maker of the capital, if that mm-hmm. makes sense, like the, the more closely tied those two things are, usually the kinder and the more understanding because anybody who has operated a business and who's gone through the struggle knows how brutally difficult it is and has been humbled by it. Where you start getting into some challenging territory is when you start getting into professionally managed money, where the people who are managing it, whether that's family members who are managing it or outside professionals who have never really made the money themselves and have never been in a business, an operating company, and that's where you get into some weird disconnected behavior where the assumptions that they're making are just you know, fundamentally different than reality.
2: I want to talk a little bit about what you think your time horizon is for this $50 million. And I'm curious to know if you think it's going to affect your behavior because you actually had a constraint in the business before, which is like you didn't have enough working capital to do some of these deals. And I think maybe that was a blessing in some way. So do you think your behavior will change? And what is your time horizon for that money?
0: two great questions slash comments. I mean, I really, as much as you can say that, that taking on capital won't change you, it absolutely does. There's zero doubt. And I think the structure of the capital, we were terrified that our interests would end up diverging from those of the investor. And so the reason why we structured it the way we did is so that we would never have an incentive to invest the capital. If you're clicking over a fee and really your your main source of income for a long time is the front end fee that you're getting, right? Two and twenty, the two percent of capital is typically where, you know, everyone's eating off of. And what does that incentivize you to do? Well it incentivizes you to do bigger and bigger deals and raise more and more money. And we didn't want to have that constraint. The way it's changed us, and I would say more it's changed me the most, unfortunately, is it's it's actually lowered my risk tolerance pretty dramatically. I look at the stuff that we were getting involved in three, four, five years ago, and I, I'm like, "Oh my gosh, how did we ever tolerate that? How did we ever stomach that?" And maybe it's just getting older. Maybe it's you know getting humbled by things that have happened, or maybe it's this fact that it's I feel much more weight of potentially losing other people's money than losing my own money. Like I'm totally fine losing my own money. I've done that enough in my career already. Losing other people's money's uh, that's a whole whole separate ball game. And so I would say. You know, we looked at in the last year some pretty fat pitches that we passed on that in hindsight were probably the result of just being a little too jittery and not taking the risk that our investors would have wanted us to take. And so, you know, mea culpa, I mean, that's on me, right? As far as how long the fund will last, I have no idea. We do deals when there's good deals to be done. And sometimes, even when there are good deals to be done, we don't do those either, apparently. But, <laughs> you know, I would say, you know we could be through the fund in the next year or we could be in the fund in you know 3 years i i don't know
2: well when your horizons you know 27 years it doesn't It probably doesn't matter so much right if everybody has that kind of outlook
0: yeah i mean we hope so i mean we we told our investors that we may do one deal in 5 years or five deals in one year it's just all a matter of what opportunities we see in the risk reward dichotomy
2: how do you think you're going to prepare yourself for that inevitability maybe of losing friends and family's money
0: Ultimately, I don't think any of us are in nearly as much control as we think we are. We have this mentality, wake up every day and think we're the you know kings of our own world, the CEOs of our own world. And, and in reality, I, mean, I think there are much larger forces and things going on. With that said, we're going to do everything we can to prepare. Preparation is the only thing you can do. And you know, if we had a highly levered balance sheets right now, and if we felt like we were kind of on knife's edge, yeah, I mean, I'd have a lot more anxiety than i do i mean i'm not going to lie and sit here and tell you that i don't worry about things of course worry about things you know in terms of mentally preparing for losing people's money i mean i'm going to handle that the same way i would handle making them money which is you know what we did our best here's the result and if you're happy with it i'm really glad and if you're not you know we did our best and that's all we can do you can't control the outcomes to a lot of things all you can do is control the swing And we're just going to try to continue to focus on making good swings. And sometimes we make good swings and sometimes we make bad swings. When we make bad swings, we try to learn from them. Even when we make good swings, we try to analyze, did we actually make a good swing?
2: Along those same lines, Brian, what are some of the things that you'd like to see maybe in the next one to two years in your organization be approved upon?
0: This is an interesting question because I would say on a scale of one to 10, With 10 being, wow, you're an incredible, finely tuned machine on the verge of greatness, to one being a complete disaster, we're probably like a three, three and a half. I think we could improve in virtually every way. In fact, every week we're learning something new, adding new structures, adding new checklists, and not just for the sake of adding more structure, just add structure, right? We don't want to become this, like, you know, behemoth of constraint. But at the same time, like, we are constantly learning and growing. And so, you know, we've made big upgrades to the team the last couple of years. I mean, we've gone from five of us, gosh, let's see, five of us three years ago to 13 of us now. And we've added a lot of people with great expertise to the to the team. So I think we're making strides in that way. You know, relatively, we're doing, I think, pretty well. But in absolute terms, there's, you know, every single gate, we have ways to learn and grow. I mean, still to this day, when I'm on the phone with <laughs> in certain industries and with maybe some lawyers on the phone, I'm like Googling terms and trying to see what they're meaning. I mean, you know, I, I feel like I owe we a all are. career to Google. So it's just trying to, trying to put the puzzle pieces together and maintain humility throughout that process.
2: Three is a very modest score, but I'll take it. And with that three, I'll ask you this question. If you were to show up to the office tomorrow and your company was a six on, on your scale, what immediately would have to change for that to happen?
0: I think we'd have to get better at investing.
2: <laughs> um, Wait, that's this, what you do.
0: <laughs> well, it's funny cuz that's actually a small part of what we do. I, have, you know, great friends that are in the hedge fund business and when I talk to them about what their day looks like, you know, they're crunching numbers and analyzing, scrutinizing details and making connections that few people make and I look at that and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, like I can't believe I could I could never compete against that, right?" I mean, from a investment standpoint, you know, most of our decisions pretty much fall in the no-brainer category. That's good in some ways and bad in others. I mean, the real challenges for us are finding the right opportunities that have the right amount of heft to the business, the right you know ingredients as part of it, and then developing a relationship. And we're probably I think better than most at doing that portion, but the actual slicing and dicing and analyzing you know trends and how different things intersect and risk factors and all that, I mean we're learning and growing in that area considerably. And I think what that looks like in, in practice is us being willing to pay more for a business that we think is really great. And right now, you know our threshold for paying up considerably is pretty low. And I think that's a function that we don't feel like we're confident that we can analyze the business properly, and so we just default to, well, if you buy it cheap enough. I mean, we're paying market multiples, but when I say pay up, I mean there are firms that will go out there and pay 50% more or 80% more than a market average multiple, and it will work out great for them because they analyze something in the business, they had the confidence, they knew what the future was going to be beyond price, and so you know we will probably a good sign of that is if we're willing to pay more for businesses, which is kind of ironic, right? It sounds like I'm I'm losing my mind, right? Like you don't want no, don't pay more, but I think that if we do it appropriately, you can generate really great returns because the business has a competitive advantage about it that's you know incredibly hard to defeat.
2: You, know, you want to pay fair market and you might even pay above market if you have some kind of intel that tells you that this is going to be okay in the future. This is going to be defensible. This is going to work out because it's hard going around trying to scrape the bottom of the barrel. It's hard going around trying to find people that are in distress, right? You don't necessarily want that because the business is probably in distress.
0: Yeah, I mean, we don't get involved in anything distressed, just kind of a general rule. But there's a big gray area between distressed and really high quality assets. And to be honest, I just, you know, we, we, I don't think we're very good yet at making the distinction in the gray area.
2: One more question. I believe you launched this this year. What is Orbit?
0: So Orbit is something we've been talking about for, gosh, four or five years, which is, we have these problems that we have an opportunity that comes up and we don't have the people or we find incredible people and we don't have opportunities for them. And we hate it because people are business. Businesses are made by people. Right. And so when we come across somebody with a specific skill set that wants to be in a specific area and that we think highly of, we want to be able to find them an opportunity in some way of partnering. And so the Orbit is a sort of a lightly structured organization that is led by a wonderful new hire of ours named Kelly Morgan, who basically takes people who opt in and asks, puts them through kind of a battery of questions about what they want to do, what's a stretch goal for them, what do they feel like they're capable of, where can they improve, really get a 3D view of who they are as people, where do they want to live, what are their family constraints, and then we organize them in the system. When opportunities pop up, we are interacting with them we're, you know, sharing certain types of information with them. We're kind of engaging with them, getting to know them for when the right opportunity pops up, we say, hey, you want to come off the bench and get into the game and get after it. And so we've had, I haven't looked at the updated numbers, I think we're probably well over 600 people now have opted in the last couple months into the system. And it's already been way more successful than I had dreamed of at this stage. And it's, you know, we're hopefully at the end of the day, we can bring really talented people into these companies and grow them for a long time.
2: So you're building your own hiring funnel. These are people that are reading what you guys are writing, that have mentally opted in, that understand what you're doing. It's really brilliant. And I think it's something that a lot of businesses should be doing. Very few are doing it. But hopefully people can see from this show what a difference it's made, that you're putting yourself out there. You're creating these materials. You're educating your market through your book. seems like it's really working out for you guys.
0: I really appreciate you saying that. Most days, it feels like we're just hitting our face on the pavement. But, uh, you know, when you you look back, you travel further than you ever dreamed. So, you know, I really appreciate you having me on the show. And thank you.
1: Ian, fantastic to have such thoughtful people on the show like Brent. One of the things I, I, I sniffed out a little here is something we call in our business, inside-out marketing. And it seems like Brent has a similar strategy. Marketing might not be the right word, but it's this idea of like delivering messages and helping out and communicating to our current customers and going out and trying to find new ones. And the idea is that if your current customers are equipped with the message and they understand why it's valuable, then they're more likely to be able to convince and they'll be more effective at convincing other people to join in than if you were to go out and do it yourself. Yeah. Brent
2: is cultivating a similar thing that we've done over at the Tropical MBA over the years, which is his own workforce, essentially. Dan, I think if people saw like the candidates that we get when we post a job on our own site, people would probably be pretty jealous if they've ever ha- tried to hire someone before because it's very hard, right? We have built-in... People understand our culture. People understand our projects, things like that. And, and most companies don't spend the time to do that. And Brent is one of these companies that has spent the time to do that and so the people that he gets in terms of incoming inquiries to sell their business or to come work for him are very qualified already because they they're on message they understand the brand.
1: You know, I think it's safe to say Ian that we're quite a few steps behind doing something at at the scale and expertise that Brent's doing it. You know, what kind of implications do you take away from an, from a conversation like that? What kind of inspiration do you get about how to approach your business because you're not investing right now, you know so what kind of lessons can you take away from an investor? I think Brent is
2: uh in investing in in a traditional way and and recently, like we talked about at the beginning of the show, there has become a little bit of a different way of investing in companies, which is these p e firms, these v c firms, and then raising funds from your friends essentially. This is what I came away with after I had talked to Brent. The way that I think forward, Dan, for myself and maybe you in the future is to invest in companies that I want to own, not as like a portfolio piece that some founder that I don't know runs and I get quarterly updates. I want to be intimate with my investments because I want to be able to control them and I want to be able to help them. And I want them to be a part of my life. I don't want them to just be something that I did, right? Some money that I threw at an opportunity. I want to be intimately involved with them. So I really like Brent's approach of investing because he is 100% invested, if that makes sense. This isn't something that he's just chucking money at. This is his life. This is his company. And I think that his investors, the people that pledged the $50 million to his firm, feel that way about it. And I think it's... you know I see these funds that are spinning up, Dan, again. And before you know it, They've invested in these twenty companies. You know, the fund was open for only a couple months, and they already have the companies that they're investing in. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa! Like, I've seen like the same five companies on Brent's website for like the past three years. They seem to acquire companies very slowly, and and I think that that's a good thing. Like, I think it's a good thing that it takes forever to find the right investment because Brent isn't counting on ninety nine percent of his companies failing. He's counting on 99% of these companies succeeding. And so I think that that is a healthy way to look at this. And I think if I was going to invest any amount of money in the future, Dan, in something that we're not building ourselves,
1: it would be to own it, not for someone else to own it and run it. That's very cool. Well, we'll leave it there. We'd love to hear your thoughts on these issues. Only time will tell, of course, how these things are all going to turn out. But what do you think about the vast variety of new investment opportunities coming up in our space. Are you invested in any of them? What do you think of all this action? We'd love to hear your thoughts. We're going to post the show notes and links to everything discussed in today's episode at tropicalmba.com slash Brent Bashore 2. And that's the number two. And We will be back, as always, next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.